supersonic. 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 Welcome to Supersonic Hospitality Marketing with me, Mark McSee, where we meet the most interesting people in hospitality, marketing, business, and beyond to hear tips, tricks, and tales to help your brand boom. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity, and serve guests better. Hey there, my name is Paul Barron. I'm the founder of I Am Donna. We are the restaurant chain on a mission to revolutionize the kebab. In 2016, we opened our first site in Leeds with massive ambitions to go global. But first, we needed a change. Being a chef, I've always been a bit skeptical about being pushed down the technological route. But what it's done for labor and customer service has completely changed the game for us. We partnered with Vita Mojo to introduce their all-in-one restaurant platform. We now take 100% of our orders digitally through kiosks, click and collect and delivery channels. We've waved goodbye to the manual processing of delivery orders as we now have all our delivery partners integrated through VitaMojo. We only need to do one menu push when updating menus across all platforms. Orders from all channels come into one screen in the kitchen making the operation faster and more efficient. The throughput is four times faster and we've seen a 35% increase in ATV. Our partnership with VitaMojo has transformed I am Donna. It's a massive part of our revolution. Find out more at vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. Hospitality event planners and venues, listen up. This is for you. Are you tired of hassle and inefficiency when it comes to event planning, especially around pre-ordering food and drinks? Let me introduce you to my friends at creventa.com, your digital solution to simplify and streamline all of your events. With Creventa, you can minimize admin time, maximize cost efficiency, and optimize all of your revenue streams. Customers are delighted with Creventa when they use it. A great example of that is the head of meeting and events at Malmaison and Hotel Duvan, who said, Creventa saves us days in planning and event execution. The new allergen function gives guests peace of mind. My team wouldn't be without it. Whether it's a party, corporate event, award ceremony or wedding, Creventa is here to make your life in events simpler. Say goodbye to wasted time, money, staffing costs and food waste. With Creventa, you can save up to 18% on food waste alone. Event planners and venues, don't let event planning be a headache. Visit creventa.com today and experience the future of seamless event management. So it's big guest klaxon time. Today we have one of the people that is awake for, I don't know, 28 hours a day looking after hospitality and looking out for it. Almost like a bat signal has gone and whatever it is, whether it's something to do with the news, something to do with major incidents within hospitality, major policies, something on Twitter, I don't know how this person finds the time or even sleeps. That person, you might have guessed, is Kate Nichols, OBE, and Kate is the CEO of UK Hospitality, and also one of the top people within the idea around hospitality rising. 
Kate also is my absolute go-to person for advice, especially when running Hospitality Rising, when things maybe aren't going so well, when I'm facing challenges, when I've got big decisions to make. Kate's pretty much the first person that I phone. I've never had a no from Kate or I don't have time or anything like that. If you multiply that by most of the people that work in hospitality then obviously getting in touch and asking for advice, our members asking for advice, help, questions, all the rest of it, plus all the interactions on Twitter and fielding this onslaught of hospitality comments, etc. on Twitter. I just don't know how it can be managed in one day. I really think we all have a lot to thank Kate for and the team at UK Hospitality and all the other trade bodies too. We're very, very lucky that while we're getting on with our day jobs, there is that other game of chess going on in government and all these areas that we don't necessarily see, we don't necessarily understand, or I don't a lot of the time. So I do feel blessed that we do have these great people like Kate in UKH, like Stephen at BII, like Robert at Institute of Hospitality, like Emma at the BBPA, and all working together to really help hospitality be noticed, be top of the agenda, and always, always get the support and the attention that it needs. So it gives me the most glorious leader pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is Kate Nichols, OBE, and is the CEO of UK Hospitality. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. We were uh, just talking off mic about technical difficulties and uh, all the stress that it brings uh, from new Macs, new phones and all that jazz, as nice as it is. Yeah, well, it, it does reinforce the fact that it's great to do it in person and, and <laughs> rather than having to do it by tech. Um, but the irony is, obviously, tech is so convenient when you're so busy and, and both of us end up being here, there and everywhere. So can't do it in person with you, but good to do it through the technology when it works. I know, I know. Do you know what? So I've just ordered a new MacBook there in, in Gora, but I've ordered another one just as cover kind of thing anyway it's came in and talking about tech i can't cancel an order online with apple how crap is that well, you have to go in person <laughs> i'm just like come on guys get it together yeah that that is that is pretty poor that you can't cancel it online <laughs> just keep saying error so they, they must want me to have it i've only got one pair of hands so there we go um what well i dread to ask this question what's going on with you Life is, is as busy as ever. I mean, I think we go from one crisis to another in the industry. Um, and we've just had, I think that the last time we did an in-person podcast was just before COVID. And then the world has been turned upside down. Um, but it's still as busy as ever talking about food price inflation, energy costs, the challenges of not having enough staff. So that's what I've been talking about today because the immigration numbers have come out. The inflation numbers were out yesterday. So I was in number 10 talking about that. So it's still just that battle to keep the industry front and centre of political attention to make sure they don't think it's all gone away and everything's rosy. Uh, and then trying our hardest to make sure that we can provide advice, insight and guidance to our members so that they can build their businesses and start to grow again. So aside from that, it's just keeping an eye on the weather. And uh, can, can we get can we catch a, a break with that to get some much needed sales? Yeah. And then I always like 
I'm so amazed when you're saying, yeah, I was just a number 10 and, and all the rest of it. And like, it's just a completely different world. And since you've been in this job as well, uh, you know, have you, what changes have you seen then from the, the different leaders being in and their different styles and, and all the rest of it? You know, is it, is it quite consistent underneath all that or is it changing all the time and you're having to go in from square one every time? You're not having to go in from square one because obviously the civil service acts like a well-oiled machine and they carry on throughout the whole of the process, irrespective of what changes over the top. But the narrative, what the government's trying to achieve, what they're looking for collectively changes out of all recognition. But I think, you know, it is it is a good opportunity to remember how far we've come. I think the last time I talked to you... Mm. We just formed UK Hospitality. The objective was, could we have one strong, united voice to get the recognition that the sector deserves? And since then, we've got a hospitality minister, we've got a hospitality strategy, we've got a separate division within the business department that looks after us. They recognise us as an export earner and an investment partner when we go in and have meetings and, and they call meetings of sort of their business council, hospitality's there front and centre, and the breadth of things we're talking about, you know, just this last couple of days, I've been in talking about international tourism and competitiveness, private investment and inward investment, private equity investment, um, contract catering and how we feed the nation, schools, hospitals, prisons, as well as high street hospitality and that sort of challenge and war for talent. So, you know, it touches the lives and, and the, the experiences of so many people, so many government departments, but everybody knows who we are, what we do, the benefits we bring. And they're all coming saying, how can we help? What can we do? So I think from going for a, for a position where they didn't realise how big and important we are and how structurally significant to now seeing that, hospitality can unlock regeneration in towns and city centres that was that was the last conversation I've just had was yeah. you know South Shields which is the beach near where I grew up where That's somebody right. said it's amazing it's bigger than Brighton Beach and I'm like yeah but it's it's sandy it's not stony it's no. a proper beach <laughs> but you know they were talking about how can street food and bars regenerate an area that is really deprived and that recognition is just great to see that policymakers get it. Um, but you have to navigate then, to go back to your original question, you have to navigate with how does the government work? You know, Boris Johnson, a very different personality and type of leader to Rishi Sunak. So you have to deal with it differently in terms of the evidence base that you've got. But my ability to go in and make a difference and to do my job to lobby on behalf of the sector rests on the information, evidence, the hard data that I get from member companies. So if you can talk me through how you get that information and how you're able to digest it, understand it, and then replay it out, because I couldn't do it. Like there's no way <laughs> in the world. It's almost superhuman. So how does that work? Because I also... I'm on Twitter a lot and, and, and you are too and, and you know we have the odd chat about the Manic Street Preachers and whatever but in terms of that you're up three hours earlier than I am you're at bed four hours later than I am and I'm like how does all that come in does, does someone pre-see it for you does it or have you got your go-to papers or how does that even work magical elixir <laughs> <laughs> there's two of you <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm cloned um I mean, 
I, ha- I have some uh, inherent advantages. So mm-hmm. I was an English student. So I did English literature, which means that you learn to speed read and absorb a vast quantity of information. You know, I used to have to do Charles Dickens, the entire works of Charles Dickens in a week. Um, so you do get used to being able to read at speed and absorb and understand. Um, and so so I think that is one of the areas that that um, is an underrated skill. Um, and, you know, the, the university that I went to, you used to have to praise So the ability to take something that is 2000 words and di- turn it into a couple of sentences to make sense of it. Um, I, those are skills that I think, you know, it's worth training people in. And it's one of the skills that we do in hospitality as well is translating technical speak into human speak. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I'm in awe of the people who can do that with ingredients and um, processors and turn it from technical stuff and technical jargon in the kitchen to something that really sells it to a customer. That's amazing what they do. I just do the same thing with political information. So it's it's not that it's not that clever really. Um, but it, it's partly it comes back to yeah. All of my career has been in politics and hospitality. They're two of my passions, and I've been fortunate enough to do it all my working life. And so. I do just absorb it and and I am intellectually curious. So I spend an awful lot of my time talking to members on calls with members. I must do about six or seven on a good week, about six on a, a difficult week, 20 mm. member calls and conversations on a weekly basis. That just means I can touch base with what members are thinking, feeling, what they're telling me is happening on the grassroots. And it's remembering those anecdotes and telling stories So, you know, it's a hospitality skill, telling stories, bringing something to life, explaining it. It's just that I can turn politics into normal for the operators and operator speak into normal for the politicians. And are you never worried that you get it wrong? Like, let's say you put out a tweet on something and you've missed the point or you've called it wrong or you never worried about that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, I mean, we're only human. We all make mistakes. And I think it's better to be able to, 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 there's two things. Never be afraid to say, I don't know. Mm. I don't know the answer. I I don't guess it. If I don't know, I don't guess it. Mm -hmm. Um, So never be afraid to say, I don't know. I'll come back to you. I'll find out. I'll get the answer. I'll deal with it. And the second thing is, if you have got it wrong, just say, you know, I, I didn't, I, I explained that badly. I didn't mean that. And, and or I've, I've got the figure wrong. Mm-hmm. We're all human. Just make, you know, I'm forever, my team are forever frustrated with me because I'm, 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 I do have a, a photographic memory for stats. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I flip numbers around because I've got mild number dyslexia. Um, and sometimes I get my billions and millions the wrong way around, which mm-hmm. can be a big mistake. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, just correct it. That's my frustration with Twitter. Twitter doesn't allow you to edit and correct. And that's that's my big frustration with that. Uh, uh, can you know with a blue tick? If you buy the blue tick, you can edit? I'm not going to buy a blue tick. <laughs> They took hey. my blue tick away. Oh, well, do you know what we got the other day? Hospitality Horizons got a gold tick. Wow. I don't know how. I wrote I wrote to the team and I said, how have we got a gold tick? They were like, oh, we emailed a, a, you know, you about it ages ago. And I was like, well, I didn't even notice. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I was like, wow. 
they, they took away my blue tick oh. and no, I, I wasn't going to buy a blue tick back because I think it's now got that reverse badge. Yeah. That's a bit enough. It's yeah. not very, not very cool for school. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, so in terms of UK hospitality, then just for people that maybe don't know as much about it as, as, as some people might who are listening, that may be members and whatever, what's the sort of main pillars of what it is you're there for? And also, what would you say to encourage people to to, to get behind it and, and become a member? Um, well, I think membership is really important. And, and obviously, we did a lot of outreach during the pandemic and provided lots of information free of charge to, to everybody to get the industry through. Um, but actually, we are funded. We're, we're not for profit. We're funded entirely by members. We're run by members for members. Um, and so everything we do is is, is funded by that. Um, and our power and our ability to influence government is directly connected to the breadth and depth of membership we have. And so, you know, it, it's the fact that we've got 700 member companies who between them operate 120,000 outlets in the core areas of eating and drinking out, accommodation, meetings and entertainment. That's 95% of the market. And it goes from a single site independent to the largest national and multinational chains. And that's what gives me the credibility with government, because there's nobody big that's not a member of ours. They're all a member of ours. Mm. Um, it, pubs, bars, restaurants, hotels, in all and at all of those sectors, we have 95% of the market in membership. So government knows that if they're talking to us, they are talking to the sector. You're never going to be able to get to 100%. It would be brilliant too. But um, but the more companies stay outside, the easier it is for government to dismiss or to say, well, we're not going to invite you to the table. And really, that's what it's about. Can we get front and centre and get to the table and have that important voice? And then in terms of what we do, so in addition to that operator member, we've got supplier associates, we've got affiliates, we've got 23 affiliate trade bodies underneath us. So we're like a CBI for the hospitality yeah. sector. Um so that covers indoor leisure, visitor attractions, tourist attractions. That so means we've got a really strong voice for hospitality, tourism and leisure. Um, and what we do, it's really fourfold. We're there to promote the reputation of the sector as a great place to grow, work and invest. And that's why, you know, we've always, always, always supported from day one hospitality rising, because it's about making sure that we've got a sector we can be proud of and that we tell people all the time the positives about it, because too many people talk the sector down. And is it any surprise that we struggle to recruit people or we struggle to get investment if we're saying it's difficult, it's tough, we're dying on our feet or um, it's a low pay, long hours, hard work. Well, you know, we need to promote the positives. We've got a lot to be celebrating about. Mm -hmm. So at the, at the macroeconomic level, it's about talking to the government and to investors and the media about the size, scale and importance and how big we are. So promote the reputation of the sector. Uh, prevent the imposition of the unnecessary costs of doing business. So we are your champion. We are your defence and pr protect the businesses. So provide insight and guidance and advice um, for people when they're coming through. So it's an insurance policy. When you get people who are challenging you and environmental health or food policy, you've got assured advice behind you and you've got horizon scanning consumer insight. And then the first, fourth one is about being that pioneer and thought leader about the way in which we need to be as good corporate citizens. 
So sustainability, environmental protection, um, uh, ESG in terms of, of good working practices and an employability charter um, uh, and, and being good governance. So, you know, all of those kind of areas are, are what we do. Um, and then in addition to that, as members, we come together in groups and we come together at big events and forums. So you've got peer to peer networking and support. So if I don't know the answer to a question, there'll be somebody who's down the road. If you're a, an operator in Brighton, a single site operator, we can put you in touch with somebody who can help mentor you as a bigger operator. We can put you in touch with somebody like uh, Christie's or Barclays or KPMG if you've got a challenge and a problem and we can give you that support and guidance. I think as well what you're saying is completely right. You know, Angela Hartnett talked about it in a video that we did with her lately for Hospitality Rising. She said, look, you don't really get a vote if you're not part of it in, in a way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's such a huge thing, you know, and, and, and as you're saying, the more might that we have uh, in, you know, organisations like UKH when we go to government, just the more assured that we're going to look and the more together that we're Absolutely. going to look as well. Absolutely, because, you know, governments don't listen to divided industries. And, and if we get in a room and we're all saying different things, and actually in, in nine times out of ten, the issues that unite us are, are, are far stronger and far bigger and everybody agrees on them. You know, they might have a different set of priorities, but whether you're late night or you're the O2 or you're Excel or you're a pub, they're the same issues that people are grappling with. Um, and, you know, you get the Twitter warriors who'll, who'll come on and sort of have a go and say, I don't know why you're asking for this. You're wrong. It's that. Mm. Well, be part of it. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. But, you know, do it from a position of strength. Be in membership. Shape the policy. Make your voice heard. But, mm. you know, don't carp on the sidelines. Yeah. No, it's exactly right. And I'm just far too sensitive to do what you do on Twitter. I just <laughs> I just I just post nice things that hopefully I don't get any flack about. I just I'd be a crying mess. Um, I, I used to I used to be a crying mess and then we went through COVID and uh, you know it, it, there is if you've been if you've had both sides of the vaccine debate calling you a Nazi and sending you <laughs> gas chambers and all oh. sorts of horrible stuff and you've had I mean I've had about 15 things that I've reported to the police that are the serious threats over the course of the last three years and you think I'm just doing my job so I just don't look at it I don't look at all the replies I mean I have to because there are lots of people on there who who need my help and support um, and I try and be as helpful as I can but you just have to let the rest go wow so I listen yeah. to Frozen and sing Let It Go to <laughs> Let myself. It go. Build, build a bridge and get over it. I, yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, it's not okay, is it? It's just No, not it's not okay. okay. It's not okay. And I think it's part of the technological world that we've moved into, that things people would not dream to say to your face. No. And uh, they, they'll say online. Um, and I think we just need to be kinder. You know, I'm quite taken. I've done quite a few interviews recently about no-shows in restaurants and... Um, stuff about theatres where people are disruptive and noisy and yeah. things like that. And you just think, we just seem to have lost our manners coming out of COVID. Just, just you know, a couple of things that don't cost anything. Just be kind and be polite. Yeah. No, definitely. It's funny. Um, you're seeing it in different guises. Like I, I, I was up in London the other day there and I definitely found London even more 
sort of selfish than 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 I had seen it for a while. I just hadn't been for a while. So I was just quite surprised with, you know, some of the behaviour like, you know, just walking onto the tube or music out loud or, you know, barging around and, and things like that. And I think we had some manners during COVID. I think we were actually quite nice to each other, you know, as we were all going through it together. I mean, coming out of COVID, I know obviously it's a horrendous thing for the world. Was there a few positives for, for hospitality coming out of it? Yeah, I do think there was. Um, you know, at a, a government level in my world, um, you know, we certainly now have recognition and uh, engagement and appreciation at a government level that we didn't have before. And as I say, coming out of it, we've now got a hospitality minister, we've got a tourism minister and a food minister. So you know, three ministers that are really helpful and strong and, and good to be to be lobbying and putting pressure on. We have a hospitality recovery strategy, a tourism recovery strategy. Um, we need to keep reminding government, but they saw what happened when they closed us down. And when we weren't working and we weren't open, the economy went into reverse. And every time we reopened, you had positive GDP growth. So by the government level, there was an appreciation. I also think there was an appreciation at a, at a customer level and a public level about what we do and the importance. And, you know, two years spent reminding everybody that we're the third largest private sector employer. We're bigger than automotive, aerospace and pharmaceuticals put together. But also people recognised and valued a safe space where they socialised with friends. And I still think they've got that. They they value coming back out. I mean, you turned off hospitality, you turned out the light and life from our town centres and our high streets, and we've got it back. And, and I don't think that appreciation from the consumer has gone away. Um, I still think they feel warm towards us. So I think those are two positives. Um, and the third and final positive is it was horrible, horrible that it went on so long yeah. and we were in and out of restrictions and closed down. I don't think that could ever happen again. I don't think the, the economy in the country couldn't afford it, but I don't think the country would would go for it again. And so I think, you know, that was a, a scarring experience and the the the, the Industry has got long COVID, economic COVID, but also mental health and well-being um, for the sector. But I, I don't think we'll ever go through that again. And it demonstrated beyond any doubt how resilient, dynamic, innovative our operators are, how big hearted, collaborative, cooperative the sector is. If you're in the sector, I don't think you realise how cooperative we are, but you step outside of it and you work in, in another sector, they don't, people don't help each other like they do in hospitality and, and hospitality showed its big heart. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things I'm just scribbling away as you're talking, the, the agility, I think, was so admirable. The, yeah. the fact it was, whether it was yummy pubs doing their Meals on Wheels type stuff, whether it was lane uh, pubs in, in, in Brighton in the main, you know, instant outdoor, takeaway windows, um, delivery, Foghorn pub in, in Port Slade that was my local at the time. They bought a wee bike and, you know, poor Niall was, was cycling around you know, Brighton and Hove delivering yeah. beers and milk jugs, you yeah. know? My my local Fuller's pub, which had a, a, a an Italian pizzeria alongside it, turned itself into an Italian deli and, and served, you know, decanted all the catering sizes of flour into smaller sizes of flour for retail customers, kept their local supply chain going because, you know, the producers who were there just for, for cheese and, and tomatoes and flour 
they would have fallen off a cliff. And let's not forget, you know, there's a whole load of the hotels who house the homeless, uh, fed and housed our NHS workers throughout the whole of the crisis um, and did care packages for them and, and, you know, came through and and delivered. Um, We just, we, we pivoted to help, we pivoted to survive and then that agility is what got our, our teams through and our staff through um, and then has stood us in good stead as we've had to adapt to the new world. Yeah, it, it feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, if um, you look at it now, you know, you don't, you can't think what we went through and how we did it, but um, it does feel like a lifetime ago, but we are going to have a long sting in the tail. Yeah, and... You know, a, a couple of things are, are quite interesting at the moment. And by the way, just to say from me, thank you for all you did and, and the team during COVID. I mean, it was crazy. You were on my telly box um, quite often. <laughs> it's like I know her. Um, but yeah, I mean, just thank you for, for, for all you and the team did. It was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, it just and all the other trade bodies well just really helped, helped all of us. So it was, it was phenomenal. And then just looking at customer behaviour for a wee sec coming out of COVID and with the way it's going. So a wee example, I won't say exactly who, but a wee example uh, the other day was I was walking around in Brighton and I saw a chef having some drinks. It was a Thursday night and I said, oh, what's happening? Oh, no bookings tonight. I was like, what? So, um, and I'm hearing that more and more where that Monday to Thursday is hard, especially if you're at that higher price point because people just can't drop that now. And there's going to be a lot of challenges Um you know, to get people into that behaviour. Is that what you're seeing in the market? Is consumer behaviour moving to weekends, going cheaper, eating in more? What, what's happening out there? Yeah, I think it's really variable and it does depend on, on where you are and, and what you're offering. But I think you've had, there's a, there's a series of sequential steps and, and uh, factors that have contributed to that. We, we've gone Come out of COVID, you've got different ways of working and patterns of working. And so particularly if you're in a commuter town or a suburban town or the centre, you've had to flip what you're doing to to take account of that. But we've also then had on top of that going straight into a cost of doing business crisis with energy and food price inflation and a cost of living crisis that we're still in now where customers are not really able to come out. And then overlaid with that is is labour shortages. So, you know, some people can't open fully because they don't have the labour. Some people can't open fully because they can't afford to. Um, and some people are not getting the customers coming through. But what we are seeing um, is is sort of uh, in the city centre locations, which would normally cater for office workers and commuters, that working week has shrunk. It's two or three days that you're getting. And, and, and you know, in parts of the city in London, it's a ghost town um, on a Friday. Um, and therefore, Wednesday night is the new Friday night because Thursday night used to be, but it's now flipped. But equally, parts of the city that were never a leisure destination are now getting more leisure customers coming in. And so tube usage in London is over 100% of pre-COVID levels Saturday and Sunday. Then in the suburban locations, what we're hearing is people are coming out, but not as frequently, and they're coming out earlier. So it's a very different pattern of doing it because you're not coming back from from work in the office, getting changed, going out sort of eight, nine o'clock. People are coming out, finishing their work. If they're wanting to do something locally, they might be eating at six o'clock. Mm. Um, and then you've got no bookings later on. So that's a challenge. And I think that the biggest issue, all of those factors combined – mean that it's really difficult for people to forecast 
and forecast when they're going to be busy, what their rotor is, what staffing they need, what their costs are. And it's that unpredictability of the consumer that I think is the key message and theme, which will carry through for the rest of the year, because we're seeing customers respond immediately with very short windows. Um, if something, if good news happens, customers come out at the weekend. If bad news is happening, um, people are not coming out and you see suppressed sales. And equally, you're seeing very short booking windows for hotels, for music events. People are leaving it later because they're not sure. And that means that it's unpredictable for planning because you, you just don't know. So one of the things lots of operators say to me is, I had a really good Thursday last week. I have no idea why. Uh-huh. And then this this coming week, it's really bad. So it just, it, you know, it's really, really difficult to plan. Yeah, it's... It's really tricky. And, you know, I think also, you know, the spend that people have, you know, and, and funnily enough, years ago, I saw, I think it was Mitchells and Butler, um, CEO, at one of the Peach events, something like that. And they said years ago, for them at the time, our customers are making the choice whether to buy our kid football boots or come out for dinner. Yes. So we need to make sure it's brilliant. Yeah. And I, I think that feels even more true now. Yes. You know, in terms yeah, very of much so. Spend. And equally, I think the, the big difference now that you're seeing is because we've gone through COVID, because lots of people have got debt, because the energy and food prices are so high, margins have really been eroded because we know we can't pass that on. You know, food prices are rising three times as fast as we feel able to pass on to the consumer. Yeah. So the business in the middle is squeezed beyond endurance. And while you might have been able to take some risks that this Thursday might be really good or this weekend might be really good because it's hot and sunny, you can't afford to make mistakes now. So people, you know, if you've got no bookings, if times were good and you had good margins, you might stay open and just get some walk in trade and take a risk. You're not going to do that now because you can't afford the risk and you can't afford to open up the doors unless you can guarantee to cover your costs. Yeah, well, I saw it on Counter Talk uh, the other day, the, the Instagram channel, and it was a operator, and they were on, and they said, you you know, the, it was almost a customer complaint, I think it said something like, your fried chicken cost £16, whatever it was, and then they broke it down, and I think mm. by the end of it, they were getting something like 27 pence. Yeah. And you're just thinking, where's the future? And then interestingly, the chef, Actor Islam, the other day said, I'm worried about the younger people coming into the industry, because is it an industry with a future? So I wonder what what the bounce is going to be. What's the change going to be? Are costs going to go down? Are people going to wear more price? It's like where's where's the you know where's the balance going to be? I think costs will start to come down mm. off the top, um, but but that that just means costs won't go up as fast. Prices mm. are not going to come down either to our customers or for us buying in. So inflation will start to come down off the top. You're not going to see those same levels of cost increases coming through, but nobody's going to do um, downward pricing. Things are not suddenly going to cost less. Um, You know, that's kind of baked in. Um, There are some products that obviously are subject to sanctions. So fish, oil, grain from the Ukraine and from Russia, that those subject to sanctions. Um, So that might help. But I think that's just baked in. And my concern for our sector, particularly, which relates to the, the, the comment about the future, 
you rely on making a decent enough margin to reinvest in your business. It's not just about the net profit margin and net profit margins have always been tight. But we fund our future growth from the profits that we get from one site to grow to five to ten. You know, if so, there's lots of people who come in and take on one site now. But where do you get the loungers of the future? Where do you get the the sort of big high growth potential because of the inception group, people like that, you know, they fund and grow from what they do on their one site. If you're not making a profit, you're not going to be able to grow and you can't increase the site numbers. So you can't grow that business and develop it. So fine, we'll have lots of SMEs and entrepreneurs and startups, but where does the growth come from? And also external investors will be turned off to come into And, you know, we have that challenge across the UK economy as a whole, inward investors, private equity coming into the UK, but coming into hospitality more specifically. We need stability. We need to know where the margins are going to improve. And and you've got to know that there is uh, an end in sight on some of those cost pressures. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugar Boat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. So was Brexit a good... I'm not going to ask you that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Was Brexit a good idea? Um, So one of the things you're working on, which I was really fascinated by, was a little bit of an adjacency to to your main thing, Um, working on the the London campaign, um, you know, which was hugely inspirational. A, tell us about that because I think it's pretty cool. And then the second thing is, you know, what we've seen for international numbers because uh, it's a selfish question about a couple of clients that are sort of banking on it. So um, I wouldn't mind knowing a bit more about that. But yeah, Yeah. I'd love to talk about that uh, London campaign. Yeah, so so Let's Do London was the the marketing campaign and and we were working closely with the mayor's office. He, He had a COVID business recovery forum. Um, and obviously was looking at the businesses in central London, and it's particularly the central activity zone, that were disproportionately impactful to London's economy and employment. And in London, we're the second largest employer, hospitality and tourism, um, and clearly a major generator of footfall and capital. So it was quite obvious coming out of the pandemic, we had a job to do to convince people to come back to cities and that we weren't going to get our international visitors. And about 80% of the international visitors to the UK come through London. So London disproportionately skews towards international tourism. So if you haven't got that, those businesses were going to struggle. So it took us its starting point. How are we going to get the tourism sector through and boost domestic tourism when everybody at the time is rushing to go to the coast and the country? How do we get people to do London as a as an alternative? Um, and so we put together a consortium that was the mayor, um, the, uh, go- the central government and Visit Britain and uh, the industry. And we got joint funding from all three of those agencies to be able to put together a a Let's Do London campaign, £10 million that we had initially. 
focused on domestic. Um, we were really ruthless about it. Who is going to be the people who are coming who will spend the most money in the London economy? Because it's very easy to fill London with people who don't spend any money. Same with Brighton. Yeah. You know, people can come down for a day trip. Um, lots of other city centres have it, but London in particular. And so initially the talk was all about how do you get Londoners back into the centre? We went, no, what we need is people from Newcastle and Manchester and other parts of the country who might be thinking, it's a shame I can't go to Barcelona or Paris or Vienna this year. Why don't you come and do a city break in London and, and explore London at a time it's quiet? And so we did that. And then we turned it on for international as well. We expanded it. We got more funding for that. And we got um, in the first year with domestic, we got back to 60 percent of footfall and revenue in London from tourism, which is astonishing. Mm. Um, and we're now up to 85 percent. Wow of volume and 106% of value in, in London doing that. And for every one pound invested in that marketing campaign, we generated uh, as a conservative estimate, 30 pounds worth of revenue and spend in the centre. Um, and it worked on the same basis as hospitality rising. We could all market ourselves individually, but we were going to get greater bang for buck if we pooled it, promoted the sector, promoted the, the destination, and a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and so it was hugely successful um, and generated a lot of interest. And on the back of it as well, obviously makes people think about London in a different way and think about coming back for a city break. So really exciting. Um, and on the international numbers, the end of last year, we got back to, I think it was 75% of international visitor numbers and a similar proportion of visitor spend. And obviously some of that spend is coming through in inflation. The forecast is that we will get back to uh, pre-COVID levels of, of visitor numbers by the end of next year. Okay. So by 2024, 2025 is where you'll get back to, to sort of profitable numbers yeah. and revenue. So it's going to take a little bit longer. But as an example, we've got 95% of our North American visitors are back, coming back. That's the level. It's about 80% for Europe. 5% for China, but there's an anticipation that China, now they're allowed to travel. Um, if we can get the conditions right, the welcome at the, the border right, the visas right, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that the government could do to help on that. But the estimate is that you'll get back to the pre-COVID levels of Chinese visitors by Chinese New Year next year. So that's going to be a really rapid acceleration, and they are high spenders. From so five from five percent to hundred percent at the start of this year to a hundred percent by Chinese New Year next year. Wow! And then just thinking, you know, for any marketers out there, you might want to listen to that and have some Chinese relevant uh, communications and also targeting and yeah. all these different things. Yeah, and payment processing and yeah. language and. You know, there's there's some really good stuff. We've been I've been working with Microsoft. Um, they they are the disability ambassador in technology. I'm the disability ambassador in hospitality. Mm -hmm. We did some pilot project work with them at Eurovision in Liverpool, which is the other side job that I've yeah, been. We're going to talk in. about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I've been really impressed. I hadn't realised how much tech was on your basic iPhone that will immediately translate. Um, just by clicking and taking a picture of signs will translate everything. It will read it out to you. It will read it in the language. And, and it's 
whisper it it's better than google translate um <laughs> but you know it will it will mean that you can be china ready very quickly because with an, a mobile phone you can increase accessibility it also has uses for those who are dyslexic dyspraxic basic literacy problems you hold up your phone and scan it like a qr code and it will read out the notice to you your health and safety notice it's just wow. amazing tech so you can turn it that you've got a normal menu any waiter or waitress will be able to deal with a menu for a deaf person and a blind person just with an iphone wow. or other mobile phones are available really? <laughs> <Not many. laughs> well i think um i think that would be really interesting actually i think that's uh workshop or a webinar or something waiting to happen to, yeah. to, to say are you ready for the world yeah well we just we we piloted it and tried it because obviously we were getting a lot of ukrainian volunteers coming sure. and working on eurovision um and they were testing the, the the tools to see whether it was better than they were finding normally and, and they just said it was transformational but you know yes in terms of are you ready for the world that language barrier is key, but from a, a marketing point of view, being being ready for the finance and and, and finance processing is also key. Yeah. So yes, love to do a webinar seminar on that. We've oh, got lots yeah. that we can share. Oh, we're going to do that. I think I'd be I'd be so helpful to to um you know marketers out there and, and for yeah. businesses. Yeah. So something I wanted to say as well publicly was a. Uh, giving you full credit for hospitality rising <laughs> and the reason i'm saying that is a few things because i think we had a lunch thing at the savoy all very ladida where we were all doing the wuhan elbow and, and all that jazz as we came in i think it was about allergens but it very quickly turned to covid chat yeah um and then we had a wee squirrely conversation across the uh, table and i think you were talking about the chef shortage yeah yeah, um, yeah so we we talked about that then we talked and then i think you talked about army be the best then you talked about the london campaign we've just talked about and basically when you add all those things together um all right it did take me two years to actually for it to click in my head um during covid but you know really just to say thanks because you know you just basically came up with it and said we need to do this so i kind of walked away with it as a wee note you know <laughs> then covid happened and then nothing happened and then it was only then when david mcdowell sent out that tweet uh which was from the bbc that it was like oh actually um we should we should give this a go um yeah. so thanks <laughs> <laughs> That's quite all right. Yeah. I think well, my, my team say that's what I do quite a lot is sort of walk in, pull out the pin, throw a hand grenade oh, and walk away. You did. You <laughs> Somebody did. else deliver it, but here's an idea. Yeah. Well, thanks for nearly killing me um, with all the stress <laughs> of it all. Um, but yeah, no, so you, you know, and just say thanks for you. You've just been so helpful through it and, and so supportive and, and UKH have just been phenomenal. But, but, but um, also you, you did take it on board because I mean, that so many times you and I will have both been in the same meetings where people say we've got a real problem. We need to get everybody together. We've got a perception problem with the industry. We need to change perceptions. We should be marketing ourselves. And you were the only one who took it, drove it forward, got the creative idea behind it. I mean, all credit to you. You got straight away what I was talking about. Mm. And the fact that we were talking about it, I think it helped that neither of us were HR and recruitment. Yeah. But we were, you know, communication and marketing. 
Um, and, and, you know, it's a huge thank you to you because you've taken a, a tiny idea that we both were talking about, turned it into something real, deliverable and something that has a legacy. You know, we're going to use it going forward. And you and I have already talked about the fact that, you know, we've got new trade deals happening in Australia that gives everybody under the age of 30 the right to come to the UK and work for three years. So how can we take hospitality rising international, go to those hotel schools, go out to those countries and just say, come and have a working holiday? I mean, it's the same process. Yeah. You want to I mean, come and have a holiday in the UK, here's some jobs for you while you're doing it. Obviously, we have to go and do a recce and get to Melbourne. Of course, of course. <laughs> Thoroughly check it out. I, I, I have already made my contacts with the, the Tasmanian Hotel Association, oh, <laughs> the uh, New Zealand Hotel Association. Mm. I mean, the challenge is they're also saying they have labour shortages as well. But <laughs> I'll do I a couple do, of shifts. <laughs> I, I do think I do think we need to we need to check it out and yeah. and certainly a trip to Lausanne and Cornell as well yeah. as the the top hotel schools, but just to Definitely. make sure that we are keeping the communication and the messaging right for those different markets. Yeah, I'm there, and uh, if you're listening, Mark Ritson, I'm going to come and see you in Tasmania. Um, so yeah, so that that would be ideal. So just then thinking about um, women in business as well. This is really important, and then funnily enough, I was having. A conversation with a, a very senior uh, sort of chair type person in, in hospitality and they were talking about there are this really strong group of brilliant women at the top in hospitality but actually that's not the problem so much it's where's the next gen how, how are we supporting the next generation to come through because I think when someone's looking for a chairperson they're talking to you Emma McClarkin, Jane O'Reardon, Karen Jones, Karen Boshaw, um, Gillian at Drake and Morgan, um, Mel at Darwin and Wallace. And, you know, there's there's a few, but there's not enough then of that next level coming through and just how can we do that? And then I think in the future for Hospitality Rising, it's something I need to think about well, which is actually, do we need a name I've just said, or do we actually need someone that's kind of coming through and on, on their way up as well so just in terms of that a there's a little bit of advice maybe for women in business coming through and, and how you've managed to get to where you've got to um and then also what can we all do as an industry to make sure that we're supporting everyone um you know coming through um especially in in the sort of female uh, side of things Let's start with the positives, because mm. I do like being relentlessly optimistic. Mm. Um, we have a good story to tell here. You know, if you look at the government targets and the, the, the uh, uh, I'm, I'm never a fan of targets, but you can't you need to measure success and, and you can't be what you can't see. Um, so if you look at the government targets around the Hampton Review about the, the proportion of women on boards, um, at FTSE 100, 250 and, and smaller non-quoted companies, we have a really good story to tell there. And the biggest advantage we've got that, that is that they're not non-executives, they're not chairs. They are the executives who are um, running those companies and are, are meeting those board criteria. So it's a third of the board should be female. Mm. Loads of other quoted companies do it by having a non-executive chair and a couple of other non-execs. And, and you're right, you go out to the same people in the industry. 
we do it. We've got the, the CFOs, the COOs, the CEOs. They're the executives that we have that are women. So we ought to be really proud of that. And we ought to speak up and champion it a lot more. Um, and they're so busy running the, the companies that they don't often do the same celebratory championing of themselves that, that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're often too busy to speak and, and to be, to be those vocal champions, but they are there. Um, and actually, what we do also have is really good representation at the lower levels. What we need to be working on is that transition up from OPCO and into EXCO and the, the routes that you've got through to get people through. And it's better in certain parts of the sector than it is in others. And in some parts of the sector, we are obsessed with the chief exec and the COO coming through an ops route. And that's where we lose bright women in that middle tier that is just below the board and just below op- OPCOM, um, because lots of women do have to go sideways or take a career break, particularly around children. And we need to find those routes to stitch them back through so that the chief marketing officer is in line to be the CEO um, or, or, or the HR, you know, those different routes and different experiences in the board. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I've been supporting Plan B um, and the mentoring scheme there about how do you help those women get ready to be on the boards and, and get ready to sort of make those next steps. And then I think it's really important. to Mentoring is really important for, for lots of people um, at all levels, but also having really strong allies that's really important too. Um, and those, they don't need to be other women. We need to have the men in the, in the room as well, shouting and championing and making those differences. And you can see when you, you go to women in hospitality, tourism and leisure events, you know, that makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, and you, you're taking account of that lived experience. And what you also find then is that if you have a better representation and engagement plan for your women, guess what? Other EDI characteristics fall into place as well because women tend to think about other protected characteristics and be more open and and sensitive to those kind of issues so it it helps for a more diverse workplace more generally yeah and then thinking about manals as well you know male panels and 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 all that sort of stuff again what can we do there to make sure that they're diverse enough and always we can just refuse to be on them Mm. You know, I, I do always say that, and, and it is a challenge because, as I say, you've got certain parts of the industry that the leaders are all male. You know, casual dining, you can get lots of women. Contract catering, you've got lots of women. Hotels, yes. Uh, pubs and bars, not so not so strong. Um, but But the other thing is that, you know, I always say I don't count. I don't count towards your diversity quota and criteria. If you've involved me... That's not really making sure you've got genuinely diverse panels. Yeah. Um, but but equally, we need to hear from those with, with merit. But but that's that's the single biggest thing we, we can do collectively is to say we, we need and deserve better. Um, but then it does mean that for us as women, we have to say yes a bit more. I know we don't like it. And I know lots of people are too busy, um, but panels are e- easier um, but, but you know, I, I always take every opportunity that's granted to me um, and because I think it's it's helpful to to be that representative voice. But as I say, you know, I think if, you, if you're looking for a diverse panel and you, you can only come to me as a female, you really need to have an operator there alongside. But yeah. but but that's that's what we can do is, is to just demand better of our conference organisers and then 
bully some of the people and, and cajole some of the people who really should be speaking, who who don't don't accept invitations to speak. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, a couple of things on that. One, years and years ago, I, do you know, I think it was Pub 15, Pub 16, I was doing a, a panel and uh, Jonathan Downey was on it and Jonathan refused to be on unless it was more balanced than it ended up being. So, you know, that, that was the first time I had seen that, you know, sort of act of, you know, kind of allyship. So I was like, well, I was really like blown away with that. You know, actually, I was like, I didn't know you could do that. Okay, great. You know, I'm going to think about that more often. Um, and then the second one was, there's a fantastic podcast to look out for, he's a couple of years old now, and it was Adam Buxton, the comedian, and he was interviewing a... a Professor, um, uh, can't, was it Diane? Something. Anyway, I'll, I'll put it in the, the show notes. And she was phenomenal. She's from Colombia, and uh, and she talked about it. And just what you're saying, there was actual. And this isn't being stereotypical or anything like that. There was data to prove that women are less sort of outwardly going than men. So men, what she was saying was, men, even if they know nothing, would still go up on the stage and yeah. blah, and women actually do know it but then don't have the confidence to to, 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 to do it there's, um, a, there's a lot of data out hmm. there that you know a man looks at a, a job application a, a sort of advert and says yes I can do 70% of that I might as well go for it and hmm. a woman looks at it and goes I can only do 70% of that I'm not going to go for it and the example I always give is Emma Causa I've worked with with Emma <laughs> and Holly Addison um, a, a, around Plan B mentoring. And, and I remember Emma going on stage to talk about this new mentoring scheme she wanted to set up. Uh, uh, did she have any volunteers? And, and half the men in the, the audience put their hands up to say, yes, they would like to be part of this. And then she went, it's for women. You know, it's about lift as you climb. And it's about trying to make sure that the, the people, the women and the men at the top can bring and create the ladder for people coming further up and, and create that, that talent pipeline. And you don't get women putting themselves forward, but all the men felt confident enough to say, "Yeah, I'd like mentoring." Yep. And you have to you have to push the women, which is why allies are so important because you do get the good girl syndrome that people sit back and wait to be noticed and wait to be asked, and they don't put themselves forward. And you need you need to cajole them and say, "You know, you have got something really important to say, really valid to say." Yeah. Um, there is a there is a big amount of impos imposter syndrome, and I. I was on a conference panel with um, Nick McKenzie uh -huh. and I was, I, I think I was interviewing him about EDI and we talked about it beforehand to say, you know, do you have imposter syndrome? Because I think, that, you know, most people would look and say neither of us do, mm -hmm. but actually you're more likely to get a woman admitting it. I'll happily admit I've got imposter all syndrome all the time, but Nick McKenzie saying that he had it but still went ahead and spoke, you know, I, I think those kind of breaking down those barriers, being open to talking about it, but encouraging people to take those opportunities and say, you, you are good enough. And we, you do have something that is worth us hearing. Yeah. And I think, you know, to next, uh, you know, sort of kudos as well, you know, being vulnerable, yeah. Is a great leadership trait, right? And, and, totally. and just admitting when you know you you admit your human feelings, and then just back to the the men saying yes for mentoring, it's half the word, isn't it? You know, they've just <laughs> they've just went men's in the title. I'm in. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, it, it, it should have been a test. If you put your hand up, you clearly don't need mentoring to yeah. improve your self confidence. 
yeah, we're mentoring, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, that mean I put them off. I don't know, but um, yeah. yeah. And then just um, in, a, in a similar track, you know, looking at diversity and inclusion and also the LGBTQIA plus um, agenda, and you know, obviously there's 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 been a few things lately on on the, the trans community, which is part of that. Um, again, just anything that you can think of in terms of how we support everyone more as well to 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 come through um to come through the ranks and and have the confidence to be to be part of it you know as well yeah i think we we probably take it for granted because we are such an open inclusive industry by yeah. and large um and and we've always created and been that safe space you know i i did a, an article for propel about it that you know it's no coincidence that the first hospitality venues were open and run by women because that was an, an allowed permitted activity back in the 17th century so we've always been a hotbed of diversity and inclusivity um and you know you, you've got the the stonewall and and you've got the, the the venues that were dedicated to providing safe spaces for those people in, in the, those protected characteristics and communities. Um, we need to be making sure that we're we're better at actively listening and understanding the lived experience of those people and not making assumptions. Um, and that all of those protected characteristics, and I include disability in that, that's one area where we are particularly weak and we need to do much more, both in terms of employment and accessibility as consumers. Um, uh, and we can't make assumptions on behalf of those people that we are trying to be open and inclusive to. So it was just doubling down on, on the listening, understanding, hearing what those concerns are um, and, and trying proactively to respond to them. And look, it's one of those areas. It's back to your point earlier about what do you do if you get it wrong on Twitter? Mm. You admit we're, we're all human. We make mistakes. There are going to be problems, but let's try and work through with the best of intentions. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, in terms of being more racially diverse, you know, at those higher levels too, I think that would be good, um, you know, in, yeah. term, in, a, in a positive move and it should be the way it is. But I think we were at a conference lately and uh, Lorraine from Be Inclusive was, was running a panel, brilliant, brilliant panel. But then, you know, there was a comment when you looked out at everyone that was in the audience, it was skewed towards males and it was, very white you know um so again i think it's just you know looking at maybe what people can do within their own companies to make sure that they are you know supporting everyone positively yeah. and, and yeah you know and, and, and yeah as i say actively listening mm. about what is what is holding them back you know it's the same as the national trust um I, he was involved in a conference and they were talking about what they were doing you know how is the countryside open and accessible and you think Hang on a minute. Why? Why is that not accessible? But it's about trying to work out why people feel excluded, or why they don't feel it's relevant to them, or mm. you know, why? Why was that audience predominantly that characteristic? Mm. Do the rest of them don't? Do the rest of them feel that it's not part of them? Is it a particular segment of the sector that we've got a real problem with mm. in diversity, and how can we overcome that? Yeah. I, I think that's right. And in, in terms of the disability side of things, we were definitely cognizant of that with Hospitality Rising, although we haven't went far enough. And some of the questions I would like to be answered and, and get some help in this area is, what what is possible? So for example, um, 
if you're in a wheelchair, can you work in a really tight kitchen? If you're visually impaired, can you be a server? You know, I just would love to investigate all of it and just see where the the boundaries are. And but as you say, I think we are pretty supportive and welcoming to everyone. It is that kind of um, you know industry, but you know, as far as we've got right now, is that we've got the barista with a, a hearing implant in, but that's about it. So I would love yeah. to keep going yeah. down that track. You know. Yeah, but I mean, again, let's be relentlessly positive and optimistic. Yeah. We, there are some areas where we do do really well. Mm. We are brilliant with neurodiversity. Yeah. You know, the, the nature of what we do um, mean, means that we can find those those roles uh, and find a niche. And some of those individuals who are brilliant find their metier when they come and work in hospitality and, and things make sense for them. Mm. Um, there are going to be roles that, that are more challenging with, for those with, with physical disabilities, yeah. but there are still roles elsewhere in the sector and elsewhere in the company that they can fit and can play a, a really good role. And again, it's about listening to the individual and not making assumptions. Yeah. So I, I was at a, a, a round table recently with government talking about this very issue. And there, there's a, a brilliant guy um, from Coke who is in a wheelchair, does have disabilities, but said, you know, people make assumptions about what he can't do, what he can and cannot do. And he doesn't want that. He mm. can make the decision. He can tell you what he can and cannot do. And then you can make adaptions. And I think people are scared about having that conversation with somebody who does have a disability or is differently abled and, and has challenges in, in various areas. People are scared to ask what is needed in case they get it wrong. And we need to be able to have an open conversation. Um, undoubtedly, we need to do better. We, we, we really do. But um, I think we can we can uh, be proud of some of the areas that we've worked on. And as I say, there are some technological solutions that make it much easier to adapt areas. But it, it goes back to some of the issues that we were talking about when Hospitality Rising was first pulled together. You know, one of the issues is people get into a groove in hospitality. They go to a pub or they go to a coffee shop or they go to a hotel and that's where they start their career and they don't like it, but nobody is there telling them, well, hang on a minute, that role might not be right for you. But look here. Um, and, you know, I, I get people saying, well, I don't want to work seven o'clock till 1 a.m. Well, OK, don't go and yeah. work in housekeeping in yeah. a nine to five. Go and yeah. work in contract catering. Go and work here. But we don't tend to signpost them because we've never marketed the sector as a whole. Yeah. And that's what's so brilliant about Hospitality Rising. It's sort of saying, look at what these opportunities are. There's something here for everybody. And that's whatever char protected characteristic you've got or whatever ability you've got. And we need to be celebrating that. There's so much more to do. I mean, I'm really excited about year two if we manage to pull it off. But, you know, in terms of, I think there's the more direct messaging on, you know, wages. I think there's more Please. direct messaging on, you know, counterbalancing the perceptions that are there of it's not flexible. You know, go and, go and be a baker in Gales or Pret. You know, yeah. if, if you're a well, morning person and, and live the postman, post-person yeah, life, you know. That, that I've done quite a few media pieces today and yesterday around migration and around labour shortages. Um, and that often comes up that, you know, what people are wanting is flexibility. So mm. that came out today in a CIPD. People want flexible working. Well, actually, what they really want is variable hours. And that's what you give in hospitality. And we're a 24-7 industry. If you want to work two hours a week, in a particular place and somewhere else, you know, we can do that. But 
this idea that it's all late night and unsociable hours, it isn't, but we've got to promote the sector as a whole. No, and, and another great idea, you, you were all of value at the Savoy that day, um, another great thing <laughs> that you spoke about was this start here, go anywhere, and I think that's where we were talking about the Army and Navy um, yes. ads, like uh, that's still inside, you know, a notebook somewhere that we have to get that campaign out, which is start here, go anywhere, and I think yeah. that that's a, that's got to be another campaign as well and you know i've had a few bits of uh feedback lately saying i don't think your campaign went far enough i don't think this was right and it's like whoa, whoa, whoa this is a marathon not a sprint just you know yeah. of course we've thought about all these things you know we're not daft it's just that that was the first cab off the rank yeah and also it was about a funnel and it, that it mm. wasn't supposed to be the solution to everything but i think now we've got a better story from the rest of the industry behind it because yeah. i'd always seen it as what's the widest bit of the funnel at the top where we can capture the most people it is going to be those with no experience limited skill set in hospitality they might be skilled workers but they're not limited they're, they're limited in hospitality um, and funneling it down. And you've then got the direct recruitment for those in um, apprenticeships and catering colleges and hotel schools. But now we've got the story behind it that says, here's the hospitality charter and the, the employability pledge that we will pledge to invest in you. We will pledge to look after you in your mental health and well-being. There's work being done behind the scenes around a universal entry standard and training and entry level induction. So we can commit that everybody who comes and works in the industry at whatever level will have a minimum standard of accredited training. We'll commit to develop you. We'll commit to taking you from here to here. Sandra, our skills director at UK Hospitality, has mapped out from entry level before you do your GCSEs, level one, right the way through to level seven and here's your career path and again if you can do that that it's accredited training it's recognized to a, a standard the industry gets behind it then you've got a really compelling message to young people to say come and work for us you can start at that um, with no experience we'll train and invest you and in two years time you'll be a manager earning 50 to sixty thousand pounds yeah. And you might be working around the world or you might be a receptionist in the gall ring wearing an Armani dress. Yeah. You know, those kind of things. I know we don't think of it as selling it, but the amount of time I talk yeah. to, to young people and say that receptionists in the, the swanky London hotels all wear designer suits and help customers who are celebrities, that kind of thing matters. And yeah. traveling the world matters. Yeah. And the only thing that's stopping us doing more with Hospitality Rising is budget. So yeah. if everyone actually got together, you know, what is it, three and a half million people working in hospitality, something like that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if everyone gave a tenner for all them, we'd have double what the army's got. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and all of that money, that's the other thing that I think people forget about. All of that money is going on marketing. Yeah. It's not going anywhere else. It's going on advertising and it's getting that message out. We've, you've done a brilliant job reaching half of all uh, 16 to 24 year olds, which was our target market yep. on TikTok, which is their preferred medium in a way that excites their interest and translates that through in six months to 100,000 job applications. You know, we, we're only getting started. If we have more money to, to reach more people, think about what we can do. And before everybody then jumps on and is, is listening and saying, well, what about the schools and what about the, yeah. the courses and, and the catering colleges and all of that? Yes, there's a lot of work that is done around that, but that's different to reaching and capturing the attention of your average 18-year-old who's coming out of school and is looking for their first entry-level job. Yeah, 
Definitely. You know, I, I, I can't. I mean, if we thought back six months and we saw these numbers, you would have, you would have said you're having a laugh. You know, yeah. and, and consideration looks like it's changed from one in five to one in three. So I'm actually worried about that because I don't really have anywhere else to go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think maintaining those numbers would 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 be good. Um, so yeah. So listen, I'm worried about your time. So a couple of things then, just fun things. Um, Eurovision. Tell me about that. What happened? Well, I'm chair of the ACC in Liverpool, which is the venue. Um, It's the M&S Bank Arena, the Exhibition Centre, the Conference Centre and the hotel. Um, And they were looking for somebody who had hotel and F&B experience to be a non-executive chair, just like you were saying, Um, and to be that kind of figurehead and promote that venue in the same way that we did London because it's owned by the council so it's one of the legacy community venues that was set up when Liverpool was city of culture mm-hmm. so it's there for the residents and they said oh it's really quite a simple task you we just need you to be a figurehead chair and it's not much to do and then within the first year we're making the bid for Eurovision and seeing if we can move Elton John so that we can host it because you had to clear I think that's what people forget. Forget it's not just the one night. Yeah. You have to clear a venue for about four or five weeks. So, I mean, the team worked incredibly hard. They are the unsung heroes because Liverpool City Council, Culture Liverpool, the BBC, they they obviously did a massive amount. But none of it would have happened without the hardworking team at ACC Liverpool who cleared the decks, got the venue ready, did the hospitality working with Sodexo, who who do the, the catering at, at the venue, um, and delivered a stunning, stunning event. And what about, how many people? Came to, to see Yeah, was it, how many Eurovision. people? Was it Eurovision? Yeah. Was it like 20,000 uh, or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 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 Crazy. I, can't I mean, it was imagine. huge numbers. There was a two-week festival in the city. Mm. Um, again, great marketing and advertising, not just for Liverpool, but the UK around the world. Yeah. Um, and it brings in that that spend and that visitor number and, and that people forget all of our tourists and international visitors who come are exports. Yeah. They're export earners. Um, and people spend more eating and drinking out. Foreign visitors spend more eating and drinking out in our venues than all of our food and drink exports put together. But we don't kind of value it as much. But you know, the, the number of people coming into the city and staying, hotel bookings, um, restaurant bookings, the, the city was busy. Phenomenal. And coronation, how was that? A uh, bit of a game of two halves, mm-hmm. really. Um, you know, again, from an international perspective, we were busy. We had good numbers. You had about um, 80 to 90% occupancy in the hotels in central London. You had a lot of foreign visitors came down. But community, people you know, had their street parties, stayed at home, watched it at home. It was less good for those mm. people and the weather didn't help. Um, but but the second half of the weekend is a bank holiday. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, really positive. Over the course of the May, so you had three, hopefully when we see what happens with the last May bank holiday. Over the course of those three bank holidays, the Eurovision festivities, UK hospitality as a whole across the entire country added an extra billion pounds of sales to what we would normally have for a normal May. Yeah. And then it's just some people would have got the lion's share of that and some people didn't. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, it's yeah, not spread balance. evenly. And I, I know because when I've gone out and done it on the media, I get lots of people coming in saying it was crap for me and I didn't. I don't trade well with a bank holiday. But yeah, but for the sector as a whole, 
for the economy as a whole, there was an ad additional billion pounds came in. Um, and then lots of free advertising on the back of it. We know from what happened with the Queen's funeral, you get an uptick in international visitors that come, an interest in bookings, and it lasts about 10 months. You have a 10-month positive effect that people look and see what's happening in the UK and want to come. And we had a brilliant showcase with the coronation and then Eurovision one after the other. And you can see immediately, you look at Google, you look at flight bookers, the interest in, in exploring flights and coming to the UK rises on the back of it. Brilliant. Okay, some fun questions. So we'll do the okay. market out of 10 stuff. Favourite city to eat in? Oh, at the moment, Manchester. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think you've got much more excitement, much more interest. It's a bit a uh, bit more dynamic. At the moment, I like eating out in Manchester. Nice. Sorry, Liverpool. <laughs> Sorry. It just it just always rains every time I'm in Manchester. It's yeah. worse than Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, I can't I can't get over that. Coming from the other side of the Pennines where it's always dry because Manchester gets all the rain. Yeah. That's a shocker. Yeah. Um, favourite hotel? Oh, oh, that's a difficult one. Um I have a soft spot for the Goring because I had my engagement party oh, there. But my favourite one at the moment where I go to is just down the road, which is the Rosewood. Oh, lovely. Yeah, not too shabby. Um, favourite coffee shop? Oh. Yeah, because I'm such a coffee addict, anywhere and anyone doesn't matter. I'll just go anywhere for coffee. Just need the refueling. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I, I get some nice coffee sent to me the other day. Um, Paul Dickinson that used to be at Fuller's, uh, he's working with Ashley Palmer Watts now. And okay. uh, Ashley started a coffee company called Artisan Coffee Co. And yeah. they sent me these boxes of coffee. Uh, you really need, if you're a coffee addict, you really need to check it out. And they sent me Nespresso pods, beans, bags, uh, ground, the whole thing. And yeah. tasting chocolates as an experience as you oh, wow. taste it to go with little menus it was like an apple it was the most apple experience i've had outside of apple i was standing wow. with my mouth open and a neighbor came into the hall and they were like oh you getting packages again i was like yeah and um and i opened it and i just my jaw was open just going oh my god this is unbuilt the thought that went I, into it i do have to say that you know one of the i was very fortunate lots of people in the industry did send me care packages oh yeah and one of the most appreciated during covid was was nero sent me oh, a massive yeah. box like that with all the different coffees yeah um and i do like italian coffee oh, me too. Um, but it's uh, one of the examples was i was at the the number 10 farm to fork summit recently which was uh a, a breakfast brunch barbecue in the number 10 garden which was Ooh. fantastic but there was no coffee and oh, i thought really? and loads of people at the event said to me you know this is farm to fork where the hospital where's the hospitality and i'm like well it's nothing to do with me <laughs> and the reason the reason we didn't have any coffee was that we don't grow coffee in the UK, but we do grow tea. And I was like, well, yeah, but we are the biggest roaster and exporter. So next time, number 10, sort out your coffee. Yeah. Um, so I am a complete coffee addict. Yeah, when you need it, you need it. Yeah, have you definitely. got a favourite bar or pub? Um, I love the Red Lion, which is my local in Ealing, uh -huh. um, which is a little Fuller's pub and, and has a lot of um, Ealing Studios um, memorabilia in it. Because ah, we're right beside the old studios, you get all the old alien comedies with them. It's called the the sixth stage. Nice. And favorite restaurant? 
Oh, that's a tough one. I think I, I, I go local again. I have an, um, I love Korean food and I have an amazing Korean, tiny Korean kitchen just beside where I live in Ealing, Park's Kitchen. Nice. All right. Well, I love you and leave you. Um, anything exciting happening next? What's what's next coming up? Uh, I'm going to try and go away on holiday. Ooh. That that's and I'm going to try and take some breaks and and go do some touring around the UK as well, just to see members. Um, because I haven't had a chance to do any of that recently. I've got one daughter doing finals and one doing A levels, so it's been quite intense in our yeah. house. So I'm going to go and and do some traveling to meet members on the back of that. Go and see some of my favorite hotels up in the northeast and some of the restaurants that I love. And my youngest daughter is a Michelin star addict. That's Ooh, what okay. she likes doing. So we've got a series of um, some of my other favourite restaurants, the women in the industry. So she wants to go to Core. She wants to go to Helena Rose in the Connaught. And she wants to go to the Frog, Adam Handley. Adam Handley, yeah. So those are my treats that I've got lined up. Very nice. All right. Thanks so much for your time. It's so nice to catch up with you as well properly. So it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, good to catch up with you too. And thank you again for everything that you're doing to support us in, in hospitality rising and, and the industry more generally. Real it's great pleasure. to work with you. You too. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So there we go. Fantastic episode with Kate as usual. I hope you found that really interesting. I think that it's worth having regular check-ins with Kate because there's no one better really in the restaurant scene and in the hospitality scene to really help us figure out the temperature and be that barometer of what's going on out there, especially at these government levels and in terms of politics, etc. It's really interesting, that world. It's a world far removed from me and, and most people listening, I would assume. But anything you can do to help get involved in the many projects and committees and all these different things that go on that all help us for the greater good in hospitality is definitely worth it. If you want to get in touch with UK Hospitality or Kate, we'll put the details on the podcast notes and you can get in touch. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity and serve guests better. Just visit vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic and get in touch with the team right away. That's vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off for another podcast and I'm really looking forward to the next time we're together. Next time, we'll hear from many, many more interesting people with top tips, tricks and tales that will make your brand boom.